Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. On July 16th, 2016, Alan Vega died peacefully in his sleep at the age of 78. In a statement, Vega's family said, quote, With profound sadness and a stillness that only news like this can bring, we regret to inform you that the great artist and creative force, Alan Vega, has passed away. Alan was not only relentlessly creative, writing music and painting until the end, he was also startlingly unique. Along with Martin Rev in the early 1970s, they formed the two-person avant band known as Suicide. Almost immediately, their incredible and unclassifiable music went against every possible grain. Their confrontational live performances, light years before punk rock, are the stuff of legend. Their first self-titled album is one of the single most challenging and noteworthy achievements in American music. Alan Vega was the quintessential artist on every imaginable level. His entire life was devoted to outputting what his vision commanded of him. End quote. It's a fitting encapsulation of a man whose work and attitude influenced many of the most significant artists in underground and mainstream music from every generation, really. Jenny Beth is the singer in a band called Savages. When she heard that Vega had died, she tweeted, Hero, genius, unique, inspiration forever. Sad news to wake up to, 
Dream, baby, dream, Alan. Dream. Well, Alan Vega and Martin Rev, they've been an influence, obviously, for a very long time. And I had been talking with Henry Rollins as well um, about, you know, how close he was to them recently, quite recently, I mean, uh, in the past year and everything. And and their music and, and Alan Vega uh, uh, also as a performer, as a lyricist, as a writer, uh, I think is, uh, you know, one of the biggest influences, I would say. Uh, for me, and I think for a lot of uh, people from my generation and older and, and probably younger as well. And uh, he's one of the main and most important writers in, you know, in music, I think. And uh, and to, yeah, of course, to wake up to his, you know, to his death is, is very tragic. Uh, although I think he had been unwell for a while. And um, when I started making music, basically, it was with um, my partner, Johnny Hostile, and we were a duo on stage. And I was playing uh, an organ called the Safiza organ, and it was a vin- big, massive piece of, vin- piece of vintage equipment, very heavy, and it was connected to a Leslie cabin, which was uh, probably heavier. And Johnny Hostile was playing guitar and drum machine, and that was, uh, you know, my life being on the road with this band and, and uh, recording uh, for maybe five years uh, in my early twenties, and uh, the main. I'd say that if I had to keep one band that influenced us at the time to do whatever we did at the time was suicide. Not only for the music, but, you know, a lot because of the music, obviously using, you know, drum machine, uh, being very minimalist, um, focusing on the performance, but also the, the whole, you know, the attitude on stage and the attitude in general, which is to kind of always, always intensity. <laughs> And always do something, no matter if the audience like you or not, and have this audacity to just perform, and uh, whether people like it or not. And 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 that was something suicide, really, is something that originated from from them, even years after they stopped touring and you know, and played. Steve Albini is a noted audio engineer based in Chicago, Illinois, and has played guitar and sang in bands like Big Black and Shellac of North America. He responded to the news of Alan Vega's passing by tweeting, What would you give to be in suicide for a day? Alan Vega was in suicide for 46 years, and he got to be Alan Vega every day. Hero. And then later that day, Albini posted, When they crack open my skull at autopsy, they'll find a couple of poker chips and the first two suicide records on a TDK C90. Well, Suicide were an enormously influential band on me. Just the minimalism of their music, how how their music was was powerful to me without being ostentatious or without being grand. You know, their music was very small, but both invigorating and terrifying. And you could tell that the music of Suicide was the product of a very focused aesthetic. And they had to put up with a lot of stupid people in their way. In order, just in order to do it, I, I admired Suicide on just on every level, and their music and their behavior influenced me to my core. Like there are things about their music that I think about regularly when I'm working on my band's music. There are things about the way they conducted themselves that I think about regularly when I'm in a situation where I have to contend with somebody else who doesn't get it. Almost everyone who was around when the first Suicide album began circulating in 1977, or who heard it 5, 10, 20, or 30 years later, seems to have a sense memory of the visceral impact that the music of Suicide made on them. 
John Colpitz is based in Queens, New York, and is the leader of the mighty percussion ensemble Man Forever. And as his alter ego, Kid Millions, he's a member of the powerful band Oneida, which he says initially did their best to replicate the music Alan Vega and Martin Rev created together as Suicide. They were there first. They were pre all the, like, the Ramones and everything. That duo, it's so alien and so, I wouldn't say nihilistic, because that's not, I mean, their shows were, the way they describe them, they're like fully antagonistic performances where they're attacking the audience and it's unbelievable. I mean, all we really have is a few records. That, that's it. But it's so sui generis, or if that's the right pronunciation, it kind of speaks on so many levels about the... In a way, I mean, I don't want to get absurd, but it's like they're talking about machines replacing human beings, and just the music is that way. It's very emotional and very human and very overwhelming it's like it's like a a battle between between humans and machines that plays out in every song (laughs) and and then then humanity seems to come out on top even though they're, they're lyrically there's some pretty dark stuff Brendan Canty is a filmmaker and musician best known for his work in the Washington, D.C. bands Rites of Spring and Fugazi. He recalls first encountering Suicide's self-titled 1977 debut album. Well, I think it was back when we were in the um, early 80s when we started collecting records around here in D.C. That was, at the time, one of those real outliers one of those really you know like throbbing gristle or something it was on the edges of what you might really get into if you were a hardcore kid (laughs) um and so it's really funny now that it's considered to be this like um establishing you know classic record when to me at the time staring at it in the bins, you know, it was a thing of, of danger and mystery. And then you'd listen to it and you really, it really just sonically would push your brain and your tastes to its breaking point, honestly. I mean, it was like the songs were long. They were weirdly repetitive. There were no, there were no drummers or bass players on it. And it was Alan just sounding like Elvis in, you know, a torture chamber or a, or a reverb change chamber or it was just you know it was a lot it was a lot to ingest at the time but once you grew to love it you you know it stayed with you and it became it became a real touchstone i personally it's one of those records that's so individualistic it is such an original and different sounding record that it's, a, it's i think it's tough to say that it directly influenced me or a lot of my friends necessarily i think what it what it really does is it pushes the boundaries of what is considered a record or what is considered a song and that i think is incredible you know i mean when you think back and that's and that's to me was one of the joys of 
collecting records to begin with or putting out records to begin with was like listening for what defined the format, what changed the definitions of the format and what pushed the boundaries and pushed your understanding of what of the potential of the format of records and songs and communication. So to me, that, that was its uh, greatest triumph. And I think it's, it maintained, especially that first record, maintained uh, its integrity along those lines for as long as, well, as long as I've been alive up to today. I think it's still one of the most challenging and incredible records ever made. Robin Phillips is based in Toronto and makes music under the alter ego Valance, which as a band just released their first record, Consent, via hand-drawn Dracula Records. She first encountered Alan Vega's music a little over a decade ago. So I started listening to Suicide when I was like 13, 14. Just the one record, the one with Cherie and Ghost Rider. And, and I bought it. Um, I'm from London, Ontario, and I bought it from this, like, it took me forever to be able to find it. <laughs> I bought it at this place called Grooves. When I first listened to it, it was like, you know, everyone has a similar experience. It's kind of something you've never, ever really heard before. And I I liked that because I was a musician then too, like not, I started playing guitar like just a few years before I would have encountered suicide. But it was the first time I'd listened to music that was had that aggression that had nothing to do with guitars so it was pretty special feeling that i hadn't really felt yet Priya Thomas is a Canadian musician, dancer, choreographer, and scholar who has made fans of everyone from John Cale and The Fall to Radiohead and Rufus Wainwright. Her work and performances have drawn comparisons to the likes of Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, Robert Fripp, Patti Smith, Bruce Springsteen, and Tom Waits, among many others. She first heard Suicide's music via a friend who played her the song Frankie Teardrop. Frankie, Frankie... So I didn't, I don't, I mean, I remember hearing it and I remember feeling uh, riveted by just what I thought was the, the kind of compassion of the track. And it stayed with me as like a, I guess, an approach to not just aesthetics, but an approach to performing something that was really, I guess it was a number of things. It was, it was the intelligence of it, the intensity of it, the use of the drone, which appealed to me for several reasons, um, one of which was that I come from a classical music background, part of which was an Indian tradition, so I was very familiar with the drone, but here it had been really re reworked in a way that was, well, carried so many other things, other movements with it that, you know, fascinated me. So that's what that's what really hit me about that track, was just that it um, it just really took you to a place that was unspeakable, you know? It was touching on something that nobody wanted to speak about, which is why I think it was so divisive at the time that it was released. 
I think people have an instinctive sense about what moves them. Um, and I, what I've heard about him as well is that he just started to represent the kind of artist that was willing to take the hits for what he was doing. I mean, he was very well, very aware, very cognizant to the fact that he was choosing to deal with, I guess, for lack of a better word, kind of the shadow, like in Jungian terms, wanting to go there and find the things that people didn't want to explore. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to you have to take the the punishment for it. And I think he did that, and he did it with grace. So, I mean, I certainly respect that. Because in the end, to me, that's what it's about. And I don't know. It's, it's a hard thing to do, right? So, I mean, I think this kind of thing has been done by um, courageous people um, a lot. So I don't want to say he was singular in being courageous. But, you know, again, I've heard that word daring so often with regard to him, and I certainly think it's true. But... For me, what hits me is that idea of being daring or courageous, it really is about compassion because what he's doing is he's really showing you someone else's life to the extent that he's willing to have you walk in their shoes. So it's even like it's deadly uncomfortable to be there and listen. I mean, his voice was so expressive too, like it was an instrument in its own right. And it really was able to take you to a place that you had not necessarily experienced yourself, right? So in some ways, it's just such an extraordinary thing. It's a real gift to be able to take someone to a place they've not been. Like if you've not, if you've, if you've never been Frankie and killed your wife and child, then you get to experience that, right? Yeah. And that's an extraordinary thing. It's like, yeah, it stays with you. Mike Watt proudly hails from San Pedro, California, and co-founded the hugely influential punk band The Minutemen with drummer George Hurley and the late singer-guitarist and folk poet Dee Boone. Watt has also led projects like Firehose. He was a member of the reconstituted versions of The Stooges and Iggy and The Stooges in recent years and is the recipient of Bass Player Magazine's Lifetime Achievement Award. I was very lucky to get to meet Alan Vega Suicide opened up for Stooges, the James Williams, the last version of the reunion when they did uh, Raw Power at the Odeon. It's called Hammersmith Apollo now in London. Yeah, I got to shake the man's hand. And, you know, this is the guy who I guess was an artist, painter. Well, we're all artists, but I, he was a painter or something. And then, yeah, saw Stooges and wanted to start a band. He told me that was the truth. It wasn't just an urban legend. And that's one of the big, I don't know what you want to call it, tenet, a principle of the movement, I think. I heard Ig say the same thing about Lou Reed singing, because, you know, Ig was a drummer. That's where he gets his name. But he said he heard Lou Reed singing, and he said, man, if this guy's trying, why don't I? So he switched on, he taught Scotty son the drums, you know, and yeah, that's the Stooges. So it's, it's kind of a tradition, you know, a trippy way. Also mixed in with this idea of uh, do-it-yourself kind of thing. Watts says the Minutemen were directly influenced by Suicide's originality and state of mind. The other big thing about Suicide for me, which is really important, and I feel really lucky, being uh, turned on to the movement, the 70s idea of punk, which wasn't really a style of music. It was more of a state of mind. And see, right away, people wanted to make it... 
I don't know if it was the people doing it, but people talking about it, want to make a genre kind of a sound. That was up to the band. See, that's what really impressed us about the movement was it, it wasn't just a uniform or a certain thing you adopted. You could tell there was opportunists who did that, but the people who really took the movement to heart they found their own way of doing music with their people. And and that's what the scene was made of, a, a different people trying to express them. So I guess that's what you would call the style. It was up to each uh, group of people. The way you expressed yourself and the way they did it was super econo. And this guy singing with the guy on synthesizer, you know, organ. You know, it was so econo. That really struck us, you know. Of course, there's the character of, you know, the outfits and oh God, Richard Hell, you know, he, that whole thing with the clothes, you know, and that was part of it. But it was actually what what was to be said, you know, what is what is in the stuff. And uh, there was so much emotion and feelings and suicide, and it didn't have to be beat on over your head with some kind of virtuosity or, or something like this. It could do it just with a passion, with the heart, and with the I don't know the life, the feeling of life in 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 their recording, in in their performance. Maybe it's where me and D Boone, you know, we're coming from Arena Rock. And this was the perfect antidote for the kind of Nuremberg rally crap that turned into. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was really important to us, a band like Suicide. It wasn't like, hey, let's copy Suicide. No, they're letting their freak flag fly. Let's find what, what makes us us. Thomas suggested earlier, Vega was renowned among other artists for his daring and fearlessness as a performer, unafraid to engage and challenge his audiences with confrontational material. Steve Albini concurs, suggesting Vega and Rev's belief in themselves has been a major source of inspiration. I don't know if you're familiar with their live recordings, but you get the feeling that they were put in front of audiences that just had no clue what they were about to see, and then they had to contend with not just like a, a surprised or startled reaction, but like a violent reaction that rejected them, you know. And the way they handled that by just, like they weren't antagonizing their audience, but they weren't allowing the audience to dictate the way they were going to conduct themselves. And they, and they, it was obvious that they weren't there for their benefit, you know. When I was a teenager, I, uh, I don't remember how, but I found Martin Rev's phone number and I called him, and I and he was perfectly willing to spend 15 minutes on the phone with a a rabid fan, just talking about suicide. It was fantastic, just the the fact that I could communicate with one of my heroes on a personal level like that. Now, I I now recall how I found his phone number. I called the New York City Information Service, the <laughs> telephone directory service, and asked if there was a number listed for Martin Rev, and there was. 
Mike Watt, too, was initially struck by the unprecedented aspect of virtually everything suicide put forth. I just think suicide was an early pioneer to say, hey, it's okay to use art like a skateboard. You know, if you fall down, get back up. You don't need a lot to make a, a statement, to make a, a work, to make a gig, to make a band, to make a tune. You just get, But you got to throw yourself into it without all these ideas of what should be. That's what suicide did for us. I mean, they were incredible. They, they, they were kind of pure. But actually, more than Pierre, they're like John Coltrane, Stooges, Beefheart. They're 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 a primary source. I would call them for for me and D Boone and uh, Georgie and the Minuteman and seen around here. They were really incredible. Uh, saying it's okay to uh, try scary things with the expression. Albini, who's had the good fortune to work with many of his heroes only briefly interacted with Vega once, approaching him at one of Alan's solo shows to express his admiration for the man. Respected for the pointed purity of his approach as a recording engineer and musician, Albini clearly took Vega's aesthetic to heart. Over the course of his whole arc, like from suicide through his solo recordings and then back when suicide sort of reanimated itself, his conception of his utility as a vocalist is is unique. Like the way his gestures and asides and guttural sounds are every bit as important as the text or the melody. Um, you know, like basically using all facets of human expression through voice as a the front man for a minimalist band. It it, it just gives you an idea that people are capable of so much and there's so much done to obfuscate that, you know, like especially in the studio environment where you hear you know, many layers of vocal used because people are terrified of the stark nature of a single voice. Mm -hmm. They feel exposed and vulnerable, right? And Alan Vega's presentation wasn't vulnerable. It was monolithic. Like, you had to contend with this one person doing all of this stuff. There was no veneer of artifice. There was no... It wasn't like there were six layers of vocal that distanced the person making the sound from the sound you were hearing. It was one guy made all of those grunts and howls and screams. And uh, and then when he would use the slap echo or the regenerative echo as a, a facet of his performance, you know, that was inspirational. Like, it just gives you the, the idea that you're capable of so much by yourself, that one person can carry so much weight that it just reinforces the notion that I have developed that a lot of what people do in music and performance is a cop-out. They're, they're just afraid of what they are, and they want to be seen as something bigger and more magical than just a person. And so they do extra things. You know, they have extra layers of vocal and recordings, or they have a bunch of stage business or lighting or costume and all that kind of stuff. All, all of that stuff is a product of the fear of being exposed. And suicide was 100% exposed at all times. Beyond his resolve as a performer, Vega was a gifted lyricist who got straight to the heart of things. Joyful things, disturbing things, whatever it was, he got to it rather directly. As such, most fans remember exactly what it was like to first hear him sing and they retain emotional attachments to specific songs. 
Here's Robin Phillips of Valens discussing the song Diamonds, Fur Coat, Champagne from Suicide's second album, which was released in 1980 and called Suicide, Alan Vega and Martin Rev. I just really like the lyrics in it, and there's something about the way that Alan Vega, especially when I was younger and listening to it, and I hadn't really like started going out yet or experiencing what like being in a, like almost like a deviant adult is like. There's something that he's really good at depicting at, which is like this he this really like dark and shady like after hours kind of like type of person that he taught like seems like he's always talking about someone like that and I it's, I just think his word choice and like also times when he like when he doesn't use words is really good in that song and I just like the opening the first 30 seconds is really good <laughs> like the intro is really great there's this like one moment where in the intro before the lyrics even come in it sort of like breaks away and then these keyboards come in and it's like it's it just like opens my ears up i love it like a 14 year old girl and girl and listening to the song girl it was very like you know it's like very sexual very primal and it just like made me think of lyrics and less of like a, a cut in box thing where sometimes it's just like the sounds that you're making a girl turn me on Mike Watt remembers the Minutemen absorbing certain lessons from suicide. It was like, this is what they had, they chose to work with. And this is what they do. Well, this is what we got to work with. When they hear it, somehow they'll know it's us. Because that's what suicide was like. They were unmistakable. When you heard it, you know, after you got to know them, first few notes, you knew it was them. It was a trip. But then it was still a surprise how they'd work it out, you know. I remember the first time we heard Frankie Teardrop, I mean, it was a mind blow. Frankie is so desperate He's gonna kill his wife and kid Frankie's gonna kill his kid Pointed at the six-month-old kid in the crib. Oh, Frankie. 
Frankie look at his wife. Frankie Teardrop was the first piece of music that genuinely frightened me. That's Steve Albini. Here's his explanation. Where the the music itself and what was happening in, in the music had the had the effect of a genuine scare of like almost falling off of a building or something like that. Uh, and that made me realize that it was possible. Uh, and I'm I'm sure I've emulated that effect throughout my entire life as a musician. I've, I've tried my best to do things that were as affecting as that piece of music was on me. If you're asking what their best piece of music is, it's probably Ghost Rider. I just really like the way the music and the lyrics evoke an, a complete image and there are little episodes within the music that I look forward to like favorite scenes in a film like the way the echo takes off after he does one of his woes you know or the way the the rhythm under the music under the singing subtly changes between the introduction and the beginning of the vocal verse there it's just it's a it's like a novel written on a matchbook Savages began performing the suicide song Dream Baby Dream, which is the non-album single that Suicide released in 1979. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ahead of their aforementioned second album, 1980s Suicide, Alan Vega and Martin Rev, Savages released a live version of the song as a B-side for their 2014 single, Fuckers. And the song is particularly meaningful to the band's lead singer, Jenny Beth. Since Alan's passed away, now we've been playing the song again. And again, it just strikes me how much this particular song is the ultimate song. <laughs> it's the song that um, it almost encaptures everything you want to put into a song. It's the perfect song, basically. And one of the reasons is I can feel when we perform it, and I don't take any credit for that, I just think it's the song as it is. I can feel when we were performing it that people, it's almost like people's chest is opening, are opening up. <laughs> no, it sounds weird, but something, it's like their shoulders are going down and something, it's like a massive sigh that comes out of relief and hope. And there's, there's a real natural uh, instant effect of that song on people and I don't really know any other song who can do that d that directly you know and that's something I've been trying to do with my song but it, it bits me through it straight away because it's so it's so I don't know it's universal I think that's what really um, makes me feel it's so important for a band known for being uncompromising and confronting the more disturbing aspects of life Beth believes there's actually a lot of hope within suicide songs this is something I've read from his, from Alan Vega's interviews, but he said that their their band name has been, you know, I mean, I love the band name, but he was saying it probably was a bad choice <laughs> because it's kind of, you know, pushed people away. But I, in my sense, it probably pushed the right kind of people away because I, when I see a cover with written suicide, I'm instantly attracted to it. I'm like, what, well, what is that? <laughs> What is this? And also, it is. I think suicide is a celebration of life. I mean, the band in itself and the music. It is, and for me, a celebration of life. It entitles everything that means life, you know, which includes death, which includes a lot of things that are scary. But uh, that's what, to me, is a celebration of life. As Priya Thomas points out, suicide's work has actually had a profound influence on some very high-profile artists. But even looking at Bruce Springsteen's work, when I first encountered Nebraska and I heard State Trooper, what I immediately thought of was that first suicide record again. So it just sort of stayed with me in many ways, and I guess the way I incorporated it into my own work. Well, the, the atmosphere of their music has influenced a lot of people, like notably Bruce Springsteen, who was a friend and covered their material and helped to bring them to a larger audience, and Rick Ocasek from The Cars, who was a fan and a friend and a producer and helped bring them to a larger audience. Like Their aesthetic was enormously influential on those people. Dream, baby, dream. Dream, baby, dream. 
part, Bruce Springsteen began performing a cover of Dream Baby Dream on his solo tour behind his 2005 album Devils and Dust, and he eventually released a studio version of the song with the E Street Band on his 2014 album High Hopes. That's the thing that, you know, that, that's, that's uh, amazing, is that, is that something can be that in, inaccessible and crazy in 1979 or 80. And then Bruce Springsteen can cover him in 19... <laughs> whatever. While Brendan Canty is likely right to be somewhat incredulous, Robin Phillips, for one, is not surprised by suicide's wide-ranging impact. Anyone I know, and I, Toronto obviously is a huge music city, and there's lots of musicians from, you know, noise music to, you know, improv music to, like, ever in between... Um, and more subgenres, etc. But I think pretty much everyone can agree on suicide. I think that everyone has listened to them and taken something from them, even if you just didn't even realize it and you just really liked like Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, which is, you know, direct, really linked to suicide. It's like, I feel like it's in a little bit everyone's repertoire and it is all, everyone has a similar feeling that Alan and suicide have or had when they listen to it which is it's something they've never heard before i see them similarly to like lou reed or the velvet underground and i also started listening at a similar time so maybe that's just my own mental frameworking but everyone has listened to them who's into music and is a musician so i feel like everyone has a little bit of that influence on them but I don't think that's there's one project or band or group, whatever, that sounds exactly directly like steeped suicide. Yeah, I mean, there's a period of Oneida for a long time. We called it One Step, and it was pretty much us trying to be, trying to take suicide into a live, instead of an electronic drum pulse, like into a, a more organic pulse world. So yeah, they're huge for, for me, for sure. Kid Millions and Oneida actually had the rare privilege of collaborating with Alan Vega on one single fortuitous evening. Yeah, well, we were asked to perform a, on a WFMU show. I don't know if it was a benefit or not. I can't remember, but it was out at this club called Southpaw. And actually, a Hamilton band played, too. The um, 
Who's that band? The the famous Hamilton like experimental band. Simply um, Saucer. Simply Saucer. So, but anyway, whatever. So I learned that Alan Vega was gonna perform that night, and I thought, wow, you know, people of the North has been. We would do like people of the North would do tours to maybe meet up with Jane, who's the guitarist in Oneida, because he didn't have as much time off. So maybe we would like tour out to the West Coast and he would come and meet us. And so we could be, be Oneida. But on the way out there, we were people of the North and we would play Rocket USA and we would just play it for like 10, 15, 20 minutes. And we would just ask an audience member to be Alan Vega. And we would we, we kind of did that for a while and then we, we did that with Oneida as well a couple times and I thought, wow, you know, this would be a perfect opportunity. I think I kind of I'm a schemer in a way. I feel like I can see opportunities. I mean this one I mean it's not really that <laughs> crazy to to be like alan vega's playing on the bill let's have him play but i thought well maybe he would say yes i think sometimes i would have the the instinct to not even ask but i thought you know he's playing on the bill we do rocket usa it's in a way it's very emblematic we should ask him if he if he'd sing so like the wfmu the booking guy reached out to the management and asked him if the manager would would agree to have a Vega perform. And so the management reached out and was like, we need to hear an MP3 of you guys playing this song live. So uh, we had one because, thankfully, because Steve Krakow, or a.k.a. Plastic Crime Wave from Chicago, had performed... Um, the song with us when we went through Chicago and he tapes everything obsessively. So he had the recording and it was, it was a good one. So in desperation, I was like, Hey man, like I emailed him and asked if he had it somewhere and he sent me the link and I, we forwarded it along and we didn't really hear anything. It was kind of like, well, okay, thanks. And, um, it was, it's so strange to be like, here's this guy who has this management wall because when we met, finally met him, he was so personable. He was just like really psyched, but it, I, you know, in this is my memory and it might be wrong, but it was kind of like, he might not have really known that it was, that it was a possibility. I think we were like, Hey, we do this thing. We do, you know, we, we play rocket USA and, it would be great if you could join us, you know, uh, and he thought, I think it was like, oh, all right, man, like, I think I might, well, I mean, if we stick around, yeah, you know, um, so I was like, okay, shit, cool, well, let's, let's see, so he, he, we got to talking backstage, and um, we got along, and I, so he signed on, and it was a really exciting for us, to have him, you know, he was the man to do it, you know? So it was a blast.
what I remember most, I mean, it was just lovely to to be like, man, this 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 legend, this person that we just we really really admire and have could only dream of connecting with. He's he's there talking to us about like playing with Springsteen. Like he Springsteen had him on stage at Madison Square Garden to play Frankie Teardrop, I think. I have to. I might be wrong. It was the song, though, a, a suicide tune. Well, Springsteen, Springsteen. Springsteen used to do "Dream Baby Dream." Dream Baby Dream. That's what it is. And so he had uh, Alan on to do that, and he described it. He told us all about. It. He's like, Bruce is cool, man. Like, <laughs> it was just awesome to hear. And it was like, we're here with this legend, and he loved the performance, which was felt really awesome. Jenny Beth also had a once-in-a-lifetime experience collaborating with Alan Vega and Martin Rev, along with Bobby Gillespie of the band Primal Scream. This was in the summer of 2015, but it was bittersweet for all sorts of reasons. Now we'd like to play a song written by Alan Vega and Martin Rain from the band Suicide. Yes, it was the last suicide show, and it was actually the last song of the last suicide show. And that was um, a year ago. Um, the the Barbican, uh, there was a big event uh, organized at the Barbican in London, um, this big venue, um, big classy, beautiful venue, you know, um, and it was a, called a punk mass. Um, and uh, the, the different things were happening during the night. Uh, um, suicide were playing, but also Martin Rev was playing his solo stuff, and Alan Vega was playing his solo stuff as well. And I was backstage for you know over doing for for some support that was happening, and I was not supposed to take part in through the evening. But um, a suicide manager came to me and asked if I wanted to sing "Dream Baby Dream" with Bobby Gillespie. And I mean, at first I, I wasn't sure. I, I was. Uh, so Henry Rollins was there as well, and he was uh, performing Ghost Rider. He was going to perform Ghost Rider, and uh, but nobody knew what was going on. It was a crazy, it was the craziest night I've ever been to, and I think anyone who was there would tell you the same thing. I can't even describe um, the insanity of this night. <laughs> Is that no one knew when things were happening or why they were happening? Um, you know, a lot of guy was coming in and out of stage. Um, it was pretty, you know. Ill at that time, I think it was very, very weak. I think uh, I'm not, um, you know, I don't have details of that, but he, I think, um, he, he, yeah, he was pretty um, tired at the time, and uh, he was performing sometimes standing up, sometimes sitting down. And uh, so, yeah, so I went on stage with uh, with Bobby, and uh, and we were standing on the side of stage, not really sure you know, when to go on or if what they were playing was dream, the beginning of Dream Baby Dream or we, we didn't know. So then we eventually went on and that was when Alan Bigger walked out of stage and Martin Ray was kind of looking back at us, starting shouting, Alan, Alan, like that. And we didn't know if we were supposed to do what. And that's when Bobby Gillespie did the professional thing when he started singing. I wasn't sure what to do. <laughs> so I joined him on the song and 
And we did that. Alan came back. But at this point, you know, the half of the audience was standing on the seats and we're clapping along, we're shouting. And it was chaos. It was really strange, strange atmosphere. Very uh, wild and alive. It was a very, it's a very strange atmosphere. And then there was Alan's son that was also on the side of the to grab the mic and start started singing, almost like talking the words as well. And and I didn't know who it was at first. I was looking around, who's singing? Is there someone else? <laughs> and then I don't know. It was such a strange, strange moment. And then Alan was looking at us, sang a few lines, and then left again. And then we left. And and that was it. And and Bobby turned to me and after we, we walked out of stage and he said, you know, we're, we're probably the only people who sang with suicide apart from Henry Rollins. And I had never thought of that before. <laughs> I went on. Hey, hey, hello, everybody. When Mike Watt met Alan Vega for the first time in 2010 for Suicide's All Tomorrow's Party show, opening for the Stooges, Vega and his longtime collaborator, Martin Rev, had a tense time of it. It was kind of unfortunate because him and uh, Martin had a little bit of fight. But then talking to Paul Smith, you know, who was, I think, their last manager, uh, he said that happened a lot. <laughs> but it was a real village fight, and then they got nice with each other again, and... Uh, but still, he was so kind to me and gave me a big attention. And then I, last year I was on tour in England. I was talking to Paul and he told me about Alan getting beat up by some idiot on, on the street. And he said his health was real bad from that. But he was getting better. And so this surprised me. I mean, I know he was an older man, you know, of course, so like 78, right? But it still was a shock to me because I did talk to Paul Smith last year. And he said he was recovering from this beat down. That's what he told me. I don't know if everybody knew. Maybe it was just he knew because he's a manager. I don't know. By some accounts, Vega suffered a stroke in 2012 and mostly spent his subsequent time living in New York City and tending to his passion for painting and artwork and avoiding live musical performances. He did pop up on occasion, though, such as the 2015 event celebrating suicide that uh, Jenny Beth had just described, where Vega was weak and in pain. Vega also appeared as a guest vocalist on the song Tangerine from a 2016 record called Le Vestige de Chaos by the artist Christophe. Made a war 
heartening to know that he was still active despite his physical frailty. But in his 78th year, on July 16th, 2016, Alan Vega died in his sleep. Of course, the odds go up as we get down the road, you know, there's going to be less companions. Well, there'll be the new shift, but from the older shift, yeah, we lose companions, so you should be able to get used to it, but I never get used to it. Every time we lose another brother, it's hard. Because you start thinking about all the stuff they did for us. Even though they were with their crew and doing their thing, in a lot of ways, they ended up doing lots for us. And so I feel debt to them. And so you you, you feel sad you lost them. But I, I know it's part of the whole deal, you know. It just, I just never get used to it. And I just, sometimes I get a little sad that maybe some of the younger people don't know. But I think that was more a problem in the older days. It seems the younger people now are way more open-minded and will check out stuff from the older days. All you got to do is let them know, you know. There's not so much uh, built-in uh, prejudice, you know. As a fan, losing Vega struck John Colpitz particularly hard because as exciting as it was for his band Oneida to perform a suicide song with Vega at a show, there had actually been a grander plan. You know, I thought, let's make, let's record, let's do something. So I pitched a 12-inch to his manager, and they signed off on it, and we we started making music. But it ended, I don't know what happened, it just ended up that we just used it on Rated O. We never really, we're not used to going through management. We just, it's, I mean, fair enough, like the dude is, he's busy, he was busy, but... I think we, unfortunately, we fucked up. We were going to do a 12-inch, and we never, like, I I never, like, pursued it, like, fully. I never, we recorded some material, but we never sent it to him. I see. So you, you, you're regretting this now, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a good lesson. <laughs> Take advantage. Do, do what you can. If you have an, an opportunity, just go for it. For other musicians and observers who are fans of Alan Vega and Suicide, there's a sense that the band's legacy and their work will live on, not only for the music that they themselves dispatched into the world, but for the often uncredited influence they've had on how music is approached by generations of thoughtful artists. When people think of arrangement and music, they're typically thinking of a lot of elements that have to fit together. And what and Suicide's music shows that you can make a very small change in one of two elements and it has a seismic effect you know for me their procedural stuff was more significant the stark nature of just two guys making all of this sound with the simplest crudest of means you know their live show probably had three inputs (laughs) you know the vocal microphone the keyboard and the echo and that was it, you know. And the fact that they could make such gripping, such compelling music with the with such a small toolkit, and the the way that they didn't shirk from the fact that what they were doing was going to be unsettling to people, and they didn't they didn't try to soften the blow ever. 
they never hid. They never, uh, they didn't, they didn't, they couldn't hide on stage. It was just the two of them, right? But when I say they, they never hid, like they were available to people to speak to. Like a teenager could call them on the phone because they were listed in the fucking phone book, you know? If so much of show business is about protecting the fragile egos of the people involved, what suicide demonstrated is that those weak impulses, the ones, uh, the, the, the fear, the reticence, the terror at being found out, you know, that, that those are unnecessary aspects of a performing life and that they have dominated the behavior of so many people from the top to the bottom of show business mm-hmm. is the reason that something like suicide was necessary as a talisman along the way for people. Whenever somebody starts to feel like they're, you know, they need to do something defensively in music or in, in performance, if you remember that suicide were around, then you realize that that's not necessary, that you can go out there stark naked with nothing but, you know, but with nothing but what you're capable of doing by yourself and still get through it fine. And in fact, that's actually the most powerful presentation you can make is to just be precisely who you want to be, unvarnished and unhidden at all times. They were always like very much outside the consciousness of things it seemed i mean springsteen embraces it because he loves great songs and he you know worships great songs he's a songwriter and and there's some really immortal songs the the way that they're presented are are, are very radical but in a way they're like american songbook type of things with 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 like a lot of healthy alienation um, dropped in. If you really believe in what you're doing, you do it for a reason other than that audience in front of you. The reason is somewhat greater than that, right? Maybe he really believes in the Frankie story. You know, yeah. that people ought to hear it regardless of what they think about it. And a lot of people can't tolerate that. There's no reason they'd be able to. But so you know that going into it, right? And I, I really respect that because. Certainly, he doesn't. Did you see that? There was a film. I don't. I saw it recently. Um, made in his later life, and he, yeah, and he's sort of sitting with his kid and wife, and they're doing laundry and whatever. And he makes a quip about not owning a Cadillac, and you can really see the creature comforts that he sacrificed through choosing to, I don't know, uh, transgress the way he did, right, performatively as, as well as aesthetically. You get a sense that he was really conscious of what he was doing right he's not it wasn't just accidental that he was dealing with the subject matter he was he obviously believed this was important to say and so he was willing to kind of go okay yeah they don't like me yeah go figure right (laughs) who expected they would like you to talk about this right so yeah i don't know yeah it's like obviously he seems like a really cool guy right i think it's like everything it comes by wave so it might be a time when they disappear and they come back again which I don't know if it will, but or maybe it would just, you know, stay very much present. I, I, I hope so. I think they've been um, probably much known now than they had, you know, at certain points in their career. So I will definitely carry on, you know, talking about them for sure. But there is a, you know, there's a legacy, but probably it's about a time as well where they were from, you know, from New York and a time and a scene. And it's a very particular you know, where, where cities were still 
you know, where artists could live in cities and make it their own and have spaces where they could, you know, perform, where they could, you know, write, when they could, you know, I feel like cities are becoming more, you know, harder and harder to, to, to be welcoming for artists and for some kind of scenes like that to be created. I don't know, maybe I'm a bit pessimistic, but <laughs> it's almost like they wouldn't be... I don't know if there could be a band like Suicide today in New York or today, you know, in London or whatever. Who knows what it's good, how somebody's going to get remembered. But I do think that they're exemplary of like a time back in the late 70s when things can, you know, when records didn't have to be, you know, two guitars, bass and drums. And, you know, like there's no way Suicide would be on the Warp Tour. You know what I mean? There's like, <laughs> it's not like they were like punk rock meant something different, and it mostly meant that you know you could you could actually you were actually charged with the idea that you were pushing the form, pushing boundaries, and trying to change the way people uh, heard music to begin with. You're trying to change you know music, and I think that that's one thing that they 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 excelled in. D. Boone, a, a skater guy, made a sticker of this quote he said punk was whatever we made it to be and, and you know suicide was a total embodiment of that they really took what we thought was important about the movement and put it in a band and i owe them and d boone was here he'd probably tell you too we owe them big time if there's anything you like about what i do nowadays i gotta give credit i think it's so fucking strong that some cats don't even realize it when they that little recording out of their bedroom with them on their Casio and singing about something that really means something to them. Whether they know it or not, suicide's back there saying, yeah, go, man. That's This is the springboard. This is the launch pad. Let it let go. You know, on, 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 on a metaphor level. <laughs> about the creative control with the Vishkana podcast, please visit my website, vishkana.com. That's V-I-S-H-K-H-A-N-N-A.com. There you will find every single episode of this show. You will also learn how you can listen to, subscribe to, and download and review and rate the show over at iTunes or audioboom.com. Please tell your friends about the show. Also on my website, you can uh, click on a link and it'll take you to the Patreon page for this show, which allows you to make a flexible monthly donation to keep the podcast edition going. Creative Control of Vishkan is uh, on Facebook. You can like us on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, at Vish Creative with a K. I'm on Twitter, at Vishkana. And you can also listen to a version of this show every Wednesday at noon via CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, or... 
around the world at CFRU.ca. This episode is brought to you by The Bookshelf. The Bookshelf is a cultural hub located in Guelph, Ontario at 41 Quebec Street. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, directions, accessibility, and to order books from their online store from anywhere in the world, please visit bookshelf.ca. It's also brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. For more information about them, visit trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H.ca. Or call them for delivery, 519-829-2444. They really only deliver in Guelph, so don't push your luck. It's great pizza, though. Maybe you should come visit when you're on the 401 traveling through Ontario or whatever. Come to Guelph. Have some pizza. Read a book. Go to a movie at the bookshelf. There's lots to see and lots to do. All right, that's it for me. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye for now. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.